Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes God's mysterious work in the heart of somebody can be made very clear through a certain change that happens from them doing merely what is expected because they have to with regard to the word of God and the life that God is calling them to live, to them being excited to go beyond and eager to do more for him than just what they have to. Being willing to suffer a cost, maybe not to be able to do something that they enjoy when they enjoy it, to doing something that God is calling them to do, even if it takes away from what they want to do. Perhaps you've had it in your own life, as I have, where that's a wonderful indicator that God's grace is working, that God is remaking us as individuals into the people he would have us to be. And we see in the chapter we have read the three friends of Daniel going beyond, being willing to risk their very lives to preserve the pure worship of the God of Israel. And the book of Daniel, if we were to give a one-word summary, it's about God, or a two-word summary, it's about God's sovereignty. And what that means is that God is the greatest. He's over all. He's the great ruler. He's the great preserver. He's the great worker of his will. God is sovereign. And Daniel and his three friends needed that. They needed that reminder because they were in captivity in Babylon. And their precious land of Israel had been really laid low and destroyed. And yet they were reminded God is sovereign to keep his people while they're far away in Babylon and to keep them faithful not to mix up the Babylonian religion with, with their own, but to keep themselves, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, loyal. As we have just sung, I shall observe it with my whole endeavor. I want to observe the law with all that I am. And so we see that with regard to the food they would eat. We see that with regard to what God shows them about the little stone made without hands that would crush the image that he saw in the dream. And we see that now in chapter 3 of Daniel. And in this chapter, we see that obedience 
godly, loving obedience is most blessed. And we are called to obedience regardless of human consequences. And that's our theme with the help of the Lord. Obedience regardless of consequences. We have three points. Idolatry decreed. Obedience declared. And presence defined. And if we had to choose a few verses It would be verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Obedience regardless of consequences. This was a massive image. Something that really reflected the glory of Nebuchadnezzar. And really, chapters 2 and 3 of Daniel belong together, one in the, in the vision and, and one in, in real life. But, but this image would have been 90 feet tall about, 90 feet wide, or 9 feet wide. And the entire thing is gold. Imagine when the sun would reflect how bright it would be and, and what a radiant image it would be. And it's all about... The King Nebuchadnezzar, showing his supposed greatness. And he gets it in his mind that this image would be the focal point for the worship of of the people in his realm. And so he sends to gather together all the, the different rulers, the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, the rulers of, of the provinces, the whole assortment of, of people in different positions, public offices, and they would come to the dedication of this image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so they come, and the plan, the decree, quote-unquote, is established. That when you hear the music, and this, these instruments would be an assortment of different instruments. There would be the, the horn, the cornet, which would be like the curved ram's horn. There would be the flute. It would be like a whistle in Hebrew. The harp would be a triangular shape with four strings. The psaltery, the bagpipe. Whenever they heard this music, the noise being generated, the people were to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. So this was the decree. You hear the sound... You fall down and worship the image. 
And what do we see immediately? Well, we see, by way of application, one of the first things is Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon representing the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom, in a sense, of Antichrist who wants false religion, idolatrous religion, to abound, to increase, to be promoted. That the true religion of the true God worshipped in the true way from the very beginning in Genesis is what they oppose. And they are content for nothing less than everybody being drawn in. And this abounds in our days as well. Where every sort of religion is accommodated except the true and exclusive and one Christ-centered religion. It's the scheme of, of Satan. It's the scheme of the ungodly age to water down and to promote idolatry. And we see how much grace and how much we have need of God to keep us. Do you pray day by day, Lord, make me, Lord, keep me faithful. Keep me sincerely following your word and worshiping you alone. We need to pray that. For without God keeping us, our hearts go out after acceptance, after ease, after popularity. But then notice how this decree really has an indicator that really it's not that great and that strong. They try to show that it's great because it's, it's going to be a universal decree. It's required of everybody in the realm. But notice the words that keep reappearing which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Verse 2. Verse 3, which the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 5, the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Verse 7, that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. The fact that this image really is the construction project. It's the, it's the effort of the king. This image has, has no power in and of it, itself. He has set it up. There's almost like sarcasm here. It's used nine times. Repeatedly, repeatedly. This is the work of men's hands. It's set up. 
There's no life. There's no breath. There's no power. It shows us the folly of false religion. Just like Isaiah can decry the false religion of his day when he says the axeman cuts down the tree and, and the person who's hewing out makes, a, makes an idol. And it's, it's almost a joke. And you compare it to the true God. In the beginning, God created. Here you have man setting up a so-called image. And in the, in the scriptural testimony, you have the living God creating the world by the power of his word from nothing. What a contrast. What a beautiful Difference. What a wonderful work. The true God doesn't need humanity to make him what he is. He has made humanity what we are. Forming us in his image after his likeness. And the last thing about this idolatry decreed is they really can't enforce it. There are the finger pointers, certain Chaldeans coming near and they're accusing the Jews and they are, are gathering up all this emotion and all this energy and this angst. Oh, king, live forever. We're going to inflate your ego, O oh, king. But there are these certain Jews that are refusing to, to worship you. And so these prominent Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And he was filled with anger and rage. And he questions them. Do you not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? You see how closely those two things are affiliated. My gods and the image which I have set up. This is the religious life of the kingdom of Babylon. But then the question he asks at the end of verse 15. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? This decree. The king could not guarantee that there wouldn't be one who would save them for refusing to obey him. He just doesn't know who. He couldn't say there is no. He says, who is that God that shall deliver you? And they answer it directly, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. 
and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. So this decree, in quotation marks, of, of idolatry, it shows the satanic desire from the beginning. Pollute pure worship. Cause people to compromise. Pressure people into conformity. We see it all around us today. Then we see it really being a reflection of our own egos. Our own hearts. We set it up. We make it. We determine it. But in the end, the true God is able to deliver. We can't enforce. God is able to deliver from the burning, fiery furnace. That furnace is merely heat that God can shield his people from. Obedience in the face of idolatry. This is what you're called to. This is what I'm called to. This is what the church must reflect. That we will serve the Lord. Secondly, obedience is declared. And this gets to the verses 17 through 18. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. What a declaration. What a wonderful confession of faith that we will serve Jehovah. We will serve the God of our fathers, the covenant God. He is the one whose kingdom is coming. He is the one who is not a geographically bound deity. This figure, this image that was erected could be seen from a, a certain distance but he wasn't seen from all over the world God the covenant God is over all he is the one who has given breath to all people he is the one who has put nations in their places he is the one who knows the hair of the head of every single individual wherever they are. We will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image. We will serve our God, the covenant God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth. So they confess him in his greatness. They, can, they know him as the covenantally faithful. He will not leave them. 
That's why they could say they will not bow before this idol. Because God will not abdicate his covenantal responsibilities, even though they're in a far off land. It's like parents working with their children, giving a time of punishment for that child's good. But that child, even though that's painful and that that can hurt, knows that they will not stop being his or her parent. For a moment, there's pain and lessons are being learned. Punishment must be brought. But they never cease to love that child. That's why they're they're doing it. They know that the God we are serving is the covenant God. He is faithful to us. We will be faithful to him. How did they know he was able to deliver? Because he delivered his people out of, it, out of Egypt. Because he delivered his people repeatedly in the time of the judges. They knew they had a rich history of deliverance being worked. Therefore, he is worthy to be obeyed. Our God, the God whom we serve, is able to deliver us. This furnace is hot, but the image is merely hot air. The God of Israel is the God who does great things in history. And the last thing about this declaration of obedience is the if not. But if not, even if God doesn't deliver us, be it known unto thee that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image. Do they leave a a little bit of fine print? But if not, they knew the law of God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And even if God in his wise decree doesn't intervene and doesn't affect a change, they still would not. Bow. They still would not serve the idol gods. It's the simplicity of faith taking God's law for what it is. We don't need to follow God's law when things are favorable in their outcome. We don't need to follow God's law when it's widely accepted merely because it's widely accepted as if popular opinion determines if we follow God's law. We follow God's law because he has revealed it. 
If not, we still will not worship. This is our obedience. This is our trusting and obeying. And here we see the type of spontaneous, the type of devotion, ultimately, that Christ would render. Here is a obedience that he ultimately brought forth perfectly, not being delivered from death, not being welcomed by religious leaders, but being led through death being opposed by religious leaders. And Christ obeyed perfectly. And these Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had wonderful promises. They had wonderful promises that God had revealed in Isaiah 43, verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. That's how they could obey. They had the word. They had the light of God's grace shining in their heart. And later on in the New Testament... In 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, Peter reveals, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Obedience is declared because God has revealed what he has done and what he calls us to do. He has been gracious. Do you live your life appreciating the grace of God? Seeing it everywhere. Understanding that without it, you would have nothing. But then also do you live your life with willful resolve that all that I am I owe to thee. Thy wisdom, Lord, hath fashioned me. I give my maker wholehearted praise whose wondrous works my soul amaze. So obedience is declared. Lastly, the presence is defined. We could well imagine Nebuchadnezzar's face getting red with anger. And he calls his most mighty men and he calls for the furnace to be heated seven times hotter. You know the history well. 
And they bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the fiery furnace with all their clothes. And when something goes into fire, you hear of it with houses that have experienced fires that everything gets impacted by the smoke. Well, they are not impacted in the least by the smoke, by having any of their hair singed. Yes, the mighty men, the most mighty men die because the furnace was so hot. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, having fallen down, bound into the midst of the fiery furnace, found company there. I see four men walking in the midst of the fire. There's the marvel. That before the Son of God came into the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, he entered into the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and communed with them there. I see one. The form of the fourth is like unto the Son of God. What a marvel. God didn't choose to keep them out of the fiery furnace, but he chose to visit them in the fiery furnace. And so he comes as close as he could come to the mouth of this furnace and he speaks, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. And they came forth out of the midst and there was not a hair of their head singed, their coats were not changed, nor the smell of fire did not pass on them. What a grand deliverance. What a wonderful presence of God with his faithful servants in the midst of the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar can only respond, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word. That's all it is now is, is the king's word, fickle, unable to endure, the king of kings, greatness, and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. The presence of God with his people in the midst of hardship, in the midst of persecution is undeniable. We can read of it ultimately with, in the New Testament with Christ, his disciples on the, on the stormy sea. He goes out and meets them. And calms the sea. We know of it with reformers. We know of it with Puritans. We know of it with people throughout the church. Martin Luther can be upheld in the face of 
angry emperor. Here I stand. I can do none other. So help me, God. Christ walks with his own in the fiery furnace. And so what is it like for us today to obey God regardless of consequences? Well, three closing points of application. The first is that this is only done when our faith is firmly in action and firmly fixed on what God has revealed in his word. We can't do this in our own strength. We can't do this mustering up boldness because we're so scared. We're so weak. We need to do this relying entirely upon God's grace. If he upholds us, he sustains us, he remains faithful. Don't gather from this sermon. You need to go and be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and have it be a moralistic lesson. We need God's grace. We need God to make us people of character who actively believe what he has revealed. Secondly, we have to see the emptiness of our idolatrous world. We have images set up all around, and even though people aren't being called by music to bow down before them, we must see it all around us. Whether it's in pop culture, whether it's in sport, whether it's in certain hobbies, whether it's in beauty and appearances, you're given the line, you need this. You need to do this. You will fit in. You will be accepted. It's all the setting up of human idols. And it's all vain. It's empty. What is lasting? The true worship of the true God. And the last thing is the consequences. The consequence of obedience, of trusting and obeying, is eternal joy and communion with God in Christ. This is what the Spirit leads a person to long for and to treasure. It's like Asaph in Psalm 73. Have I cleansed my hands in vain? Is it futile to be a faithful follower of God? Thou didst set them in slippery places. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none that I desire upon earth beside thee. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever.